following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. There are many things in our world our personal lives, our culture, the church, that frustrate us. We know those family difficulties for which there seems to be no solution. We have a, a lost loved one who continues to harden himself or herself in sin. We see the decline of, of our culture around us on, on all sides and the weakness of the church. We look afield and we are astonished at the persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world. And when we look at these things that in a sense are beyond us, our frustration grows and sometimes we'll say something like this, I really can't do anything, but I will pray. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? That is absolutely the worst thing in the world to think or say. Not because you said you would pray, but because of the very low premium that you placed on prayer. You know, in our culture, we're doers, we're fixers. We love to have our hands in the midst of things. And we often fail to realize that we're but little agents that God may or may not use. But the one person who really is at work in all things is the Lord God. And the one way that we access Him is by our prayers. There's nothing more important or powerful that you may do for any of these problems that would frustrate you than to pray. That's why prayer is such an important part of Antioch. You look at our service and you see that it's full of two things. It's full of scripture and it's full of prayer. We have this commitment to corporate prayer here. We have a commitment to our prayer meeting on Wednesdays. A commitment to our kingdom prayer on Lord's Day afternoon. And that is because we recognize that apart from prayer, not anything can happen of any spiritual worth or good. And that's what I want to encourage you about this morning. This ministry of prayer and its essential importance in the life of the church. Paul's coming here to the end of this letter to the Romans. He's written to prepare them for a visit. He begins in chapter 1 by letting them know that it's been his intention. He has longed to come. And up to that point, he's been hindered by the sovereign grace of God. So in his absence, he gives them this most wonderful gospel treatise. And he lays out the entirety of the apostolic gospel in the ensuing chapters. In fact, I think from this, I was meditating this morning that we probably gathered from Romans what Paul was teaching in every church where he could stay for a period of time. But now in chapter 15, he returns again. He's, he's wanting to pave the way. He knows that perhaps there will be ill feelings toward him since he has not come to them. After all, he is the apostle of the Gentiles. They are the capital city of the Gentiles. Paul where have you been? You're missing in action. And so once again, he reiterates why it is that he's not been, but now that he hopes to come, preparing them for that visit. But before he comes, he has one other very important mission to fulfill. And that mission is a diagonal offering that he's taking to the church in Jerusalem. 
And that trip is fraught with difficulties and danger and threatens to his life. And so even as he excites them about coming, in the closing paragraph uh, that is our text, 30 to 33, he enlists their prayers. And here we see the church's ministry of prayer. So what I want to show you is that God commands the church to labor in prayer in order to enter into the ministry and the blessings of the gospel. God commands the church to labor in prayer in order to enter into the ministry and the blessings of the gospel. I'll seek to open the text up under four headings. The prayer is a, um, a serious work, a solemn duty, a special privilege, and a spiritual blessing. The prayer in the first place then is a, a serious work. Look at verse 30. The seriousness and the work are expressed here. The seriousness of the work, uh, of the nature of the work that he calls us to, uh, is prayer. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He uses the general word here for prayer. But you'll note that in particular, the, the work that Paul sets before us is this work of intercessory prayer. This praying for others and particularly praying for the ministry. Same thing he does in, in Colossians chapter 4 as he calls the church to pray. And he then uh, says in verse 3, uh, praying at the same time for us as well. That God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And so it is this intercessory prayer, uh, that which is spelled out in the Lord's Prayer, the praying for the coming of the kingdom, praying for those who minister in the work of the kingdom. But the seriousness of this work is seen in the particular verb that Paul uses here. Well, one more thing about the work. Notice that it's corporate prayer to which he's calling us. He's addressing the church now. He's not just addressing us as individuals. Now, obviously, any command to the church encompasses us as individuals, members of the body of Christ and in the church. And of course, we cannot separate our daily habits of prayer from the church's life of prayer. But it is particular to this work of corporate intercessory prayer that Paul here is instructing us. That which we do in corporate worship, that which we do in our prayer meeting, this coming together as our uh, catechism instructs us, praying with and for one another in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the pattern of the early church, wasn't it? So immediately as the apostles witnessed the ascension of Christ and they returned to Jerusalem, they go to the appointed place, to the upper room, where they gather with 120 of the Jerusalem saints. And there, men and women together, pleading with God to grant the promise of the Holy Spirit. Where were they? What were they doing when the Holy Spirit was poured out? Well, by implication, because they were at the upper room, uh, when the Spirit was poured out, they were there doing what they did there. They were there praying that God would keep His promise. 
what did the church do when it was threatened? In Acts chapter 4, they gathered together. They had a prayer meeting. And constantly Paul is calling the church, not just individuals to pray, but for the church to gather for prayer. This is, this is the work. This is the work that Paul is calling us to do. But the, we see the seriousness of the work by the verb that he uses. For he says here, Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now this word strive, we get our word agonize from it. Paul uses it, uh, we saw in 1 Timothy chapter uh, uh, of Timothy to, to do the work of a soldier. Paul himself says in 2 Timothy 4 that he has fought the good fight. He uses this word. But in Colossians chapter 4, he describes the praying of Epaphras as one who was agonizing in prayer for the church at Colossae. And you see this word pictures for us then work, hard work. When I was a, a new Christian, I remember a, a speaker saying that prayer is the hardest thing that you would ever do. And of course, as a baby Christian, I laughed. No, not out loud, but of course, in my own heart. Little did I know anything about prayer at that point. You know that prayer is hard. We know that regular prayer for any of us is hard. The practice of prayer is hard. But the difficulty that Paul describes here is not merely the, the hardness of, of, of coming to prayer, but it is the laboring in prayer that is hard and we have rarely touched upon it. So what does it mean to labor in prayer? Let me tell you two things. Put them together in a sentence. Persistent pleading. Persistent pleading. Let's begin with the pleading. We, we see it in Psalm 86. Uh, we see it in so many of the Psalms. You'll notice that uh, it begins, I'm inclined your ear, O Lord, answer me for. That means because I am afflicted um, and needy. Uh, preserve my soul, your servant, trust in you. And make glad your servant. For you, O Lord, to you I've lifted up my soul. He, he pleads God's work. You're good. You're ready to forgive. He pleads God's attributes. And this so often is how the, the, the fathers prayed. In, in Exodus chapter 32, as God threatens to cut off uh, Israel, uh, Moses then comes to him and, and he pleads in, in uh, Exodus 32, 11. Then Moses entreated uh, the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power, with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I've spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people now God was training Moses as the mediator and the changing of his mind is a figure of speech but you notice what God used he used this powerful, bold pleading with God. Notice that, that Moses stacks one argument against another. He says, God, they're your people. You, you redeemed them. You're the one that swore. You're the one that made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said you'll make their descendants to inherit the land. And so he gathers from God's nature and from God's word, from God's promises, these arguments just as the psalmist did. And this is what God would have you and me to learn to do. 
Not to go through a laundry list. God bless mommy, God bless daddy, etc. God bless the church. But to learn to gather from our grasp of Scripture, from the nature of God and, and the promises of God and the attributes of God, arguments to reinforce our petitions. Spurgeon said that we should fill our mouths with arguments like a good lawyer. That we prepare ourselves to come into the presence of the Lord God. This is work, isn't it? It's work to begin to think this way. It's work to assemble the arguments. And it's work to make them ready to mind. And you need to practice it in your private prayers. We need to practice it in the prayer meeting. We need to model it in our prayers in corporate worship. And so we must learn to plead with God. Not simply throw up uh, our petitions to heaven and see if they'll stick to the wall. But it's a persistent pleading. Because God in His sovereignty, His loving wisdom doesn't ordinarily answer a prayer immediately. Now, if it's an immediate need and danger and we cry out to Him, He'll deliver us. But God wants us to learn to persist and to persevere in prayer. The Savior makes this so clear in Luke chapter 11. One of the things about the Gospel of Luke is it highlights, I think, more of the other Gospels, the prayer life of the Savior. This had a marked impact on his disciples. And so the, the chapter actually begins that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's when he gives us one of the versions of the Lord's Prayer. But then he, he says this. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door's already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, and the, the Greek word is his shamelessness. That's how persistent he was. His shamelessness. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. So, I say to you, Ask in the present tense. Keep asking, it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who is asking receives, and he who is seeking finds, and him who is knocking, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He'll not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father... Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. What a glorious lesson that the Savior gives us here in persistence. God wants us to keep begging. We've all been in, the, in, the, in Walmart and, and been embarrassed by the child that keeps barraging his mother. The mother says no, and the child keeps pleading and pleading and pleading. That's the one thing where our Father is different. Until He clearly says no to us, He wants us to pound on the door, the throne room of heaven. We have warrant here to do it. To come before Him shamelessly. To continue asking and seeking and knocking. But what a glorious promise that He's a Father. Because He's a Father, He loves to give us what's good. Yes, even the Holy Spirit. The gift of God that we need above everything else to do anything in the Christian life. And so God has you wait. He does not answer your prayers quickly. He's training you 
to learn, to labor in prayer. Persistent pleading. So this is the seriousness of the work of prayer. The second thing I want to show you is that it is a solemn duty. Now it is a duty. We see this as well in verse 30. I urge you, brethren... Now, this is not pious advice. It's not the uh, Roman Catholic Council of Perfection. It's not a suggestion. No, this word urge is a commandment. It's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies living sacrifices unto God, which is your acceptable service. Is that a suggestion? Or is that a requirement? It's a requirement, and it's this this commandment here. I urge you, brethren. In other words, now I know all of you know that, that private prayer is a duty. And as our confession says, we're to be about it daily. Um, but you see, corporate prayer is also a duty. Both in the worship service and in the prayer meeting. It's a sin for the church not to be seeking God corporately in prayer, not just in corporate worship, but in some form. There's different ways to do it. But this is a commandment for the church to labor together with the apostle in prayer. And he shows the the solemnity of the duty by enforcing it with two evangelical motivations. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ... And by the love of the Spirit. He speaks to them as brethren. He's acknowledging that this is a Christian obligation. And the first motivation for it is by our Lord Jesus Christ. He sets the Savior before us here in the fullness of his person and work. Uses all of his names and titles. He's Jesus, the incarnate God-man who's come to save his people from their sins. He is the Christ. He's the anointed prophet, priest, and king who has done and is doing everything necessary to save us and perfect us. And he is our Lord, our supreme sovereign over all. Now, what does it mean to be urged by our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul is reminding us that the only reason that we can pray is because of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us back to that glorious truth of adoption. It's kind of flowed through our service as well. As Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth of his son to be born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us that we might have adoption. You see, we have the privilege of prayer because of the perfect work of the Savior. Because God has pardoned our sins and constituted us righteous, he's also adopted us into his family, and he spirits come into us, teaching us to cry out boldly, Abba, Father. And we do so with confidence, knowing that because of this work of Christ, that we have full access to the throne of God. Now, that should motivate you. Think about it when... Praying at times is more difficult and, and the flesh draws back and you're thinking of three other things that really you need to do. Remind yourself what it cost your Savior for you to utter one word of prayer. One simple plea. He had to become a man, suffer the abuse throughout his life, obey the law of God perfectly, atone for the wrath of God on the cross, 
and die and be buried that you and I might prayer. Pray, does that begin to show you how this is a motivation? To meditate on the person and work of Christ will help you to pray. But it's a two-edged sword and let me turn it around. There's no such thing as a prayerless Christian. A Christian praying is, is like when the do they still spank babies on the butt when they're born to make them cry or grasp? Well, they used to. I don't know what they do now. It's been a long time. Uh, but uh, you spank that baby. You want that baby to cry. The crying of a newborn is exactly like praying to a Christian. You remember what God said to Ananias when he was hesitant to go to Saul of Tarsus? He gave him the address and he said one simple thing. He's praying. He's praying. He'd been subdued. He was no longer breathing out fire against the church. He was praying. If you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, you're going to pray. That doesn't mean praying is not difficult. But you'll want to pray. You'll miss times of prayer. So I say to you today, if any of you here have no interest in praying, the only prayers that ever come out of your mouth might be some formal prayer at, at the meal or when you gather with the church. It's a very sound indication that you're unconverted. You're still born. You're not yet alive. And this needs to cause the very first prayer of yours that God will ever hear. That is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my hypocrisy and renew me. Because if you are in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, you will pray and you will grow in prayer. Now, the second motivation is by the love of the Spirit. It's kind of one of those double entendres. I think it, it, it is both objective and subjective. It's first the Spirit's love for us. We rarely think about that. We think about the Father's love. We think about the Son's love. But the Spirit loves you. And that this very Spirit, whom Christ says God gives to you, enters you, loving you, longing to perfect you in the image of Christ. He too enters into your prayers and He perfumes them as well and lifts them up through Christ unto heaven. And if you're aware of the Spirit's love for you, then you want to pray. For He is in you as this great agent of praying. But the Spirit also is the one who pours into us the love of God so that we love God and we love our neighbor. And thus, if you are experiencing the love of the Spirit, you want God to be honored and you want your neighbor to come to Christ. You want your brothers and sisters to be cared for. You see how that's a great motivation for prayer. And so, yes, it's a, it's a serious work, but it is also a solemn duty to which God is calling. Each one of us, by grace, the very spirit of whom I speak is the one who will enable us to grow in the practice of prayer. In addition then to being this... Uh, serious duty and, and uh, uh, serious work and solemn duty, we see here that it is a special privilege. This gets back to our meditation um, that um, is in 2 Corinthians 1.11. You must also help us through your prayers. Now notice, the thankful part is a consequence. What Paul is asking for here is that the church, by its prayers, would help him. That's what he does now in our text. So notice in verse 31, it's a purpose statement. So he said, I urge you to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That, for what reason? 
that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. We can sum it up that Paul says that we are to pray for two things, for God's ministers and office bearers, um, safety and success. But here we come now to the crux of the matter. Here is where we begin to enter into the reality of what God is doing. You see, Paul is soliciting prayers from these people for his ministry, which he's saying by that, what he says in 2 Corinthians 1.11, that they enter into that ministry and they help him. So no, you can't change the heart of a lost loved one. You can't heal the broken family. You can't get over to Afghanistan and help brothers and sisters, literally, but you may spiritually, for you enter into the work of God. Now, these two things are very important. Paul first asks for safety or security. Let me set the table for you. He is going to Jerusalem with a diaconal offering for the church that was greatly impoverished. In Jerusalem, the Pharisaical Christians were going to say to that offering, we don't want it. It's Gentile money. It's kind of like lottery money, although we'll take lottery money here. Uh, it's Gentile money. It's tainted money. Now, if, see, this offering was to express the unity of the church. If this offering is rejected, then there'll be great danger to the church. So Paul is going, having been warned that the other Jews in Jerusalem will seek to kill him. This is why he's persisting with this love offering. And so he prays for us. The Holy Spirit said, you're going to be in prison. There was no shadow of doubt about it. But God has also let him know he should go to, go to Rome. Does that make him passive? No. He's praying and he's asking now the church to pray that he be delivered from the enemies of the gospel. Now, today we see how much more appropriate this prayer for security or safety is than it was even a few years ago for ourselves. As the church is increasingly in a precarious situation, as Christians are being taken to court because of a refusal to make a cake for a, a sodomite wedding, or insisting on meeting when the governor has said you may not meet, or all these things, and, and the very hatred that's growing up in society around us, we are aware of the, of the, of the glowing dark, growing dark clouds of persecution. But of course, it's nothing in comparison to what our brothers and sisters are enduring around the world. So we're to pray for their safety and ours. But also, Satan has many other tools than persecution. In fact, persecution always backfires. The early church said that the death of the martyrs was the seed of the gospel. That as, as they poured out their blood and, and their enemies saw it, they would be converted right and left by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so a much more severe attack for us in comfortable West is attack either on morals or doctrine. And thus we need to pray for our office bearers in the church and particularly for the ministers that God will keep us from moral falls and doctrinal falls. And we, in, in Timothy, you remember, we saw how easy it is for these things to occur in the church. And we look around us and we see week after week, and a minister here, a minister there, falling into sin, or people going into terrible errors of doctrine. And so we must be diligent in praying for the, for the security, the safety 
of the ministers of the gospel, office bearers, because we're not like generals in World War I hiding back somewhere behind the lines. No, we must be by our calling on the front line. And the darts must pass through us before they will pass to you. And so pray for us. But then for success. So as I said, Paul's bringing this offer. It's very important to him. But there are those that want to reject it. That would ruin the unity of the church. You understand that. This was a Gentile way of saying you have helped us spiritually. We want to help you materially. If that offering is rejected, the church would be fractured beyond description. That's why Paul is praying then, asking them to pray in the second place that um, my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So Paul was well aware that even a diaconal offering could have no spiritual success unless the Spirit blessed it. And if we expected the Spirit to bless it, then the church had to be praying for it. And surely you can make the leap of logic. If the church needs the work of the Spirit to make a diaconal offering successful, how much more to make the gospel successful? overcoming the kingdom of darkness and converting men and women, bringing them from darkness into light and delivering the saints from uh, habits of sin and, and destructive patterns in their lives and causing the church to grow together. Do you see how we need this? That our service would be acceptable. That Zach's service and my service would be acceptable. That the minister of the gospel will labor with success today and it will not happen Apart from your prayers. In corporate worship. In private. In the prayer meeting. We must be pleading with God persistently for these things. But look what happens. As we see the, the work. A serious work. A solemn duty. A special privilege. We see then a spiritual blessing. Notice how Paul now shows the consequences. So that I may come to you. Enjoy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The church that prays will enjoy peace within and the peace of God. We'll enjoy peace within. He's already said a couple of times, you know, I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He said, I, I want to come to you when I have enjoyed your company for a while, for then I'll be going on to Spain. He, and what he realized was, is that as the church is laboring together in prayer, there'll be so much joy when Paul shows up in Rome. Because they will recognize that they had a part in this. That he's there because they prayed with him as they prayed for him. And they're going to find refreshment in one another. The apostle will be refreshed in the fellowship of the Roman church. They'll obviously be blessed and refreshed by the presence of the apostle to the Gentile. And this is what happens to the church that prays. We cannot be in that prayer meeting week after week and begin to get picky and argue with one another, can we? As we labor side by side in prayer, there's, there's a bond of peace that binds us together. It is a cement of the peaceful fellowship of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could coin the phrase, the church that prays together stays together. 
And God keeps the evil one from us. Now, he will move amongst us. You know that. And nobody that seeks to take a, a proper stand and to live together in the holiness of the gospel is going to be exempt from the attacks of the evil one. But this, praying for safety, success, praying together, will be the means of a refreshing fellowship in our midst. But peace with God. Now, this you know, verse 33 just kind of hanging there. It's kind of early for a little benediction. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul will say that again later. Why does he put this here? I think he's emphasizing that when the church prays together, the God of peace who brings peace manifests himself in their fellowship. Yes, in the prayer meeting, but most particularly now in corporate worship. If we're pleading with God in our private prayers, our family prayers, our prayer meeting, that God will meet with us in worship, God is going to meet with us in worship. This God of peace is going to come in our midst. He's going to be with us. He's going to demonstrate Himself to us. And it's going to happen through prayer, which God has appointed. So you see, this wonderful spiritual blessing that belongs to the church and to the people and to the families that pray. So God commands you church, He commands us in His church to labor in prayer that we might enter into the work of the church, that we might enjoy the special blessings of God. Now I know that you're committed to prayer and I hope you're encouraged in this to see uh, this Duty that's a wonderful privilege, as all God's duties are, to which he has called us at Antioch Presbyterian Church, and in our lives, and, and in our, our families. And I encourage you, because I don't know a church that has the kind of commitment to the prayer meeting, that all of you, unless you were hindered by work or whatever, some portion of you have a regular habit of being at prayer meeting. And that pleases the Lord. And that is a means that God will use greatly to bless the church. I encourage you as well to be prepared for, prayer, for corporate worship in prayer. And coming ready into the presence of God on the basis of the perfect work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And that you grow in your practice of private prayer. Just as we said last week that private Bible reading and preaching are hand in glove. Preaching God's primary means of grace, but you'll not profit nearly as much if you're not in the Word. It's the same in prayer. The foundation is laid in what you're doing day after day. In private prayer, praying in your families, teaching your children to pray, first at home and then at the prayer meeting. And so I encourage you. If you've got difficulty there and you've had trouble with establishing patterns, so just start off very not ambitiously. Just determine I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day in Bible reading and prayer. Now, right now, that's not very much. Well, no, it's not very much. But if you're overly ambitious, you'll never establish the proper patterns. If you'll start with that which is doable, it will expand. Because you'll learn and it will grow. Same with family worship. If you've not been consistent in family worship, start. If you need help, seek help. But may God give us grace to enter into this ministry of prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. 
For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.